This week, the prevalence of severely underweight women and a randomized control trial of strategies to treat peripheral arterial disease. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm joined by Fahad Razak, who is a general internist at St. Michael's Hospital and the University of Toronto. Hey, Fahad, how's it going? Amol, great to be back. It's good to have you back. This is our final episode of the year, uh, so let's make it a good one. The holiday episode. I can't wait. The holiday episode. Eggnog, mistletoe, me, (laughs) you. That's right. So before we dive into our articles this week, we're going to start with a new segment from our very own medical student, Jennifer Peng, who's going to talk about echinacea. Hey everyone. In our new segment, Mythbusters, we want to explore the evidence behind common medical myths so that you can be the judge. So for our very first myth, we chose the use of echinacea in treating and preventing colds. Despite the winter weather approaching quite slowly this year, the incidence of the common cold is still expected to peak, and it isn't uncommon for people to start taking the herbal supplement Echinacea at the first sign of a cold, hoping it'll either prevent the cold from developing or hoping to reduce its severity. Regarding Echinacea for preventing colds, the primary outcome for the prevention trials was to measure the number of patients with at least one cold. Exploratory meta-analysis pooling all trials with 1,167 patients in total showed an absolute risk reduction of 10% and a number needed to treat of 10. The most common dosage used was 300 milligram capsules or 1.5 milliliters of liquid alcohol extract three times daily and the duration of trials ranged from two to eight weeks. In the echinacea treatment trials, the primary outcome was to measure the duration of the cold in days. Out of the six treatment trials that reported data on the duration of colds, only two showed a significant effect of echinacea over placebo. However, one of these trials showed a high risk of bias and the other with an unclear risk of bias. Exploratory meta-analyses was not done due to the strong heterogeneity of findings and the methodological quality. The Cochrane Review notes that the echinacea used in the studies was prepared in a variety of different ways, varying in the plant material used, the extraction methods, and the addition of other ingredients, and therefore not always equal in its bioactive components. We know that overall, echinacea is generally well tolerated, and severe adverse reactions are quite rare. The most commonly reported adverse effects were headache, nausea, and a bad taste. So what's the verdict? A number of echinacea products slightly reduce the risk of getting a cold, but the overall evidence for treating existing colds is weak. According to UpToDate, the typical doses recommended by manufacturers and used in the studies are 300 mg of dried extract 3 times daily, 1 cup of tea containing 1 gram of the echinacea root 3 times daily, and up to 1.5 ml of liquid alcohol extract 3 times daily. It's believed that echinacea can be used for up to 8-12 to 12 weeks with no adverse effects. Echinacea is usually taken as soon as the first signs and symptoms of a cold appear and taken for the duration of the cold. So that wraps up our take on echinacea in treating and preventing colds. If you'd like to read the Cochrane review we featured, you can find a link in this week's episode description on Healthy Debate. 
We'd love for our listeners to share any medical myths that they know on Twitter by tweeting us at roundstable with the hashtag roundstablemyths. Thanks, and I'll catch you guys next time. Okay, thanks, Jennifer. Just in time for cold season. So, Fahad, I think we're about ready to dive in, but before we do, I feel like we owe an apology to our listeners. I I know what's coming. You know what's coming? Well, it's been a slow week in research, and (laughs) we were able to find one really high-quality randomized control trial to present. Unfortunately, the other article is really like a substandard... Somewhat shoddy, not super relevant piece of work that sort of sneak it, sneaked its way into one of the sort of lower tier medical journals. That's right. I was, I was thinking before this podcast of how to make fun of myself, but so no need with you So can you tell me why you chose to pick this article to talk that you want to talk about severely underweight women? Why'd you pick this topic? So I'm completely self-serving. This is a paper that I just published. With Congratulations! My, you published with, a paper in JAMA. With my 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 many co-authors, including uh, Art Slutsky and Andreas here at the Li Kai-Sheng in a group uh, in Boston and in India. Well, okay. So all joking aside, uh, that's a great achievement. And uh, we're excited to talk about your work. So tell me about uh, your paper. Tell me about the prevalence of severely underweight women uh, what it, what was known before you decided to do this study? So let me start with a summary of the major finding. So this this paper that that we published two weeks ago in JAMA uh, provided the first estimate of severe adult undernutrition in low and middle income countries. Our estimate is about two percent of women are affected. That levels have not improved over the last two decades, and that as expected, the women most affected are those who are the poorest or the least educated members of society. The overall estimate is about 18 million women are affected, and probably a similar number of men. Okay, so you mentioned that this is, seems to be the first estimate of this uh, important uh, entity. So tell me, what was known before you did the study, and why did you decide to do this study? Right, so severe underweight was defined about 25 years ago by the United Nations, and they wanted a method to quantify the most severe form of chronic adult human undernutrition. And they defined it using the body mass index. And the definition they use is a body mass index, or BMI, less than 16. And it's important to clarify that these are people who are small because of severe and ongoing chronic undernutrition, rather than people who are otherwise healthy and then lost a lot of weight. Um, As I mentioned, no prior studies have examined how common this is across low- and middle-income countries and whether it's improved. So that's what we looked at. And the reason that you uh, that that clinicians and the and the public health community should be interested in very low BMI is that people with low BMI, especially BMIs this low, less than sixteen, have very high mortality, probably similar to morbid obesity or a BMI greater than forty. Uh, it affects their daily lives quite substantially. They have decreased muscle strength. They can't work as efficiently. They have a lot more sick days. They're more susceptible to opportunistic infections, and there's an important multi-generational effect. Uh, women who have low BMI are less likely to be fertile, and even if they do have a pregnancy and give birth, their babies have higher mortality rates, and they're more likely to be stunted or wasted. Does this only affect certain countries, and, and how did you sort of do this research as a result? I can't imagine that there are that many people with this degree of severe chronic malnutrition in uh, the developed world. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So this is essentially a non-existent entity in a high-income country. 
And so what we wanted to quantify here was how common it was in low and up to middle income countries. And the truth is it doesn't really affect a lot of people, even in middle income countries. This is almost exclusively a low income country problem. The way that we study this is there is a, a, a long-term ongoing survey called the Demographic and Health Surveys run by USAID. It's been running for over 20 years, and it's the largest representative sample of what's happening in a range of low- and middle-income countries. We use 60 countries in our sample. Uh, and this data set is really important because it gives representative population-level data. So it really tells you what's happening at a country level. Okay, and so what did, what did you do with this data set? So we looked specifically at body mass index, and we looked at very low BMI. BMI is less than 16. This is also called severe thinness, or it's also been called severe chronic energy deficiency. And we wanted to know, first, how common is it? Second, who is most affected? So we looked at things like education and income level. And then finally, are levels improving over the last two decades? So we know that these countries have all gotten wealthier. We know that obesity and overweight levels are going up in all of these countries, but what about the other end of the spectrum? So that's what we looked at. Okay, and so what did you find? So three major findings. First, uh, this condition is relatively high prevalence, especially in countries in South Asia. For example, in India, about 6% of women are affected, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, in Ethiopia or the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, secondly, if you try and quantify the number of women affected, it's about 18 million women, 14 million in India alone. Uh, we had data on a smaller number of countries with men as well, and levels seem to be roughly similar in men and women. So if you want to get a total estimate, you could double this. So probably about 36 million people overall and about 28 million people in India. Uh, the second question was, Is the, are levels improving? So in the majority of countries, 31 of 40, there's been no decrease in BMI less than 16 over the last two decades. Um, so that's a very troubling finding, especially as these countries become wealthier and there is more overweight and obesity. Some good news, some of the countries which had a large burden, for example, India, shows improving levels. So there's been a decline in the prevalence of uh, BMI less than 16. However, other countries with high levels, for example, Senegal and Mad Madagascar, levels are actually increasing. Um, and the third finding is that the people most affected are those who are poor. So it, they tend to be three and a half times as affected with this condition. And those who are least educated, uh, the odds ratio is about two for that group. You focused on women in this study. Why the focus on women and not men? So this study was put together by USAID, as I said, more than two decades ago. And it was initially focused on fertility. And so they gathered women, they gathered data on women. They have expanded their data to men over the last decade. Uh, but the truth is there's just not good data for the majority of countries in men. So there is no parallel study that has data on men across these countries. So what we did is we did an estimate for women, which is what we have data for. And then in the smaller group of countries that have data on men, we looked at whether levels were similar in men and women. And they were very similar. We looked at a correlation coefficient, it was greater than 0.9, indicating that it was very similar. So you can extrapolate and say levels are probably similar in men, but we don't have the data on men in the majority of countries. Interesting. It's a little surprising to me then that there are not gender differences, actually. Like I would assume that in lower income countries that women would be at higher risk. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that people wondered about. I would say just in the 13 countries that we do have data, levels are very similar in men and women. There do seem to be inequalities in severe undernutrition among male and female children. 
but by the time you get to the adult stage, it seems like levels are pretty similar. So in other words, it would be relatively uncommon to find a situation where, for example, in a husband and wife, one would be normal weight and the other would be severely underweight because of nutritional reasons. That would be unusual. I should point out, as opposed to the situation in children where, for example, there's feeding preferences. So in a, in a family with very constrained resources, if they have a male child and a female child, there's some evidence to suggest that they'll feed the male child better. So that is really interesting. You mentioned also that the number of severely underweight women has not decreased over time during your study. At the same time, we have seen, at least in the popular literature, I believe, an increase in the amount of obesity. So does that mean that there is growing inequality in terms of weight distribution? Definitely. So in these countries, and this is a a paper that we did a couple of years ago, there is a lot of inequality developing in body weight within each of these countries. Part of that is probably related to the fact that there's socioeconomic inequality that is growing in these countries as well. So you can see that this kind of severe underweight is almost exclusively concentrated in the poorest and least educated members of society, whereas overweight and obesity are more of a middle, uh, middle class or uh, upper income problem. The other thing that's important to realize is that on average, these countries have shown a lot of gain. So this is further showing that there's kind of a left behind population who are not uh, benefiting from any of the gains made by their country. So this, I think, has something important to say for our overall discourse about obesity, uh, which seems to have garnered most of the attention in this conversation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe tie it into why you think this problem has not been studied before? Uh, Definitely. So I, I think one of the most surprising things for us as we put together this analysis is the fact that this was the first global estimate. And for a condition defined 25 years ago, how is that possible? And I think it points to the fact that uh, the research community has focused disproportionately, we would say, on problems of overweight and obesity and related chronic diseases in low and middle income countries. The truth is, is that severe undernutrition and conditions related to that are still a major and potentially the major population burden. I'll use India as an example because it had the largest number of people with severely low BMI and the highest prevalence. India has a prevalence of obesity of probably about 3%, and the prevalence of BMI less than 16 was probably about 6%, so double. But if you look at the research being done in India, it's heavily biased towards problems of overweight and obesity. And there's a larger socio-cultural reason why that's true. Research funding often is driven by people who are in positions of power, who are high income, who are politically uh, connected. And these are people who also are more likely to be obese, overweight, and have problems related to that. So there's probably a bias related to those, uh, to to people wanting to study the conditions that affect them. The second reason is probably our focus in high income countries on chronic disease, which I think is very appropriate, has permeated the kind of research that's being done in low income countries and biased that as well. Now this hasn't formally been shown, but it is something we're working on. So where do you go from here? So for us, I think the important next questions are, so we've shown here that there's a lot of undernutrition. What is the health and mortality impact on populations? That's something we're trying to quantify. And then the second point that I'm raising about the fact that there's not a lot of research being done on this population, trying to quantify that imbalance as well. And any interventions? 
So interventions are extremely challenging. One of the things that we realized when we were uh, putting together our literature review for this is that, in fact, there are no large-scale long-term follow-up intervention studies on this group. We don't know what to do. Uh, even if we were given uh, unlimited resources at this point, we don't know how to improve their health. You may think that it's as easy as providing them with more calories and more food, but what small studies there are indicate that, in fact, when that happens, when you take an adult who's severe, severely undernourished and give them more calories, that you can have adverse impacts. So, for example, they can develop a lot of adipose tissue, develop metabolic consequences like prediabetes, hypertension, etc. So how to provide increased calories in a way that will improve their quality of life but not make them more susceptible to chronic disease is an important outstanding question. Great. Okay. Thanks so much for presenting your paper, which, you know, on balance wasn't so shoddy after all. <laughs> Thanks, Mal. Okay. Uh, why don't we change gears and talk about a more clinical entity. So I want to talk about peripheral arterial disease. This is actually something we haven't really discussed that uh, much on the podcast yet. So I'm delighted to be bringing forward a new topic. I want to present the results of the ERACE randomized control trial, which was published in JAMA and is about endovascular revascularization and supervised exercise to treat peripheral arterial disease. The major finding in this study was that endovascular revascularization plus exercise was better than exercise for patients with peripheral arterial disease in terms of improved maximum walking time 12 months after the intervention. So what did we know about peripheral vascular disease and interventions to improve quality of life before this study? You mentioned walking time. Is that the gold standard outcome that we use? Yeah, so the, the typical symptom of peripheral arterial disease, certainly the one we see most clinically, is intermittent claudication or pain with uh, walking or with exertion uh, as a result of insufficient blood supply to specific muscle groups. The recommended first-line therapies for intermittent claudication are supervised exercise, so graded increase in exercise, as well as risk factor modification. And the question that these authors are bringing forward is whether endovascular interventions, a revascularization procedure, is superior to that. There were two systematic reviews that suggested that revascularization procedures when combined with exercise, might be superior to exercise alone, but the quality of that evidence was poor and a large randomized control trial was needed. So how did the authors do this study? Yeah, so this was the ERACE randomized control trial. It was 10 sites in the Netherlands. They included patients who had stable claudication, so this is important, people who had stable symptoms for at least three months, and then people who had demonstrated peripheral arterial disease using the measure of the ankle brachial index, which we use, and the, these patients had to have an ABI of less than 0 0.9, um, or the ABI had to decrease during exercise. So that's a fairly loose characterization of peripheral vascular disease, right? Less than 0.9 would not be considered to be very severe. Correct. Uh, so uh, it would just basically say that there is some degree of, of peripheral arterial disease. These patients also had to be symptomatic. So, you know, to some extent, they had to have at least moderate enough disease to be symptomatic. They also had to have stenosis um, that could be intervened on. So they need to have specific stenosis at either the level of the aortoiliac vessels or the femoropopliteal vessels. 
And then finally, they needed to have a maximum walking distance of 100 to 500 meters uh, on a treadmill. So they could only walk between 100 and 500 meters. So that is pretty severe peripheral arterial disease where you're not able to walk more than 500 meters, but not so severe that you can't walk for at least 100 meters. So this, this walk test is, they're given an unlimited amount of time to walk that distance, and it's when they stop because of pain? It's on a treadmill. There's a, a specific protocol for the test on a treadmill. Okay. Uh, so there's a specific protocol. They excluded patients who had uh, target lesions that could not be revascularized. Um, and they also excluded patients who had limited life expectancy for some other condition other than their peripheral arterial disease. And the primary outcome, as I mentioned before, was the maximum walking distance at 12 months uh, after the intervention. And you mentioned as part of their inclusion that they had to have stable claudication for three months. Is that because if they had more rapidly progressive claudication, they would always get revascularization attempted? Yeah, not so much always, but that that would often be an indication with deteriorating symptoms as an indication for, uh, for revascularization. Okay. So they screened about 666 patients and included ultimately 212 patients. Um, their patients were average age of 65, mostly men. Almost all of them were smokers or former smokers, which speaks to the predominant risk factor for peripheral arterial disease. Uh, they also had what you would have expected as typical comorbidities uh, with diabetes and coronary artery disease. At baseline, these patients could walk an average of about 275 meters maximum and were pain-free for only about 125 meters uh, of walking. So it seems like only about a third of patients screamed became eligible for the study. Before we get to the results, does that make you wonder about the generalizability? Yes, it does. I think we'll come back to that in the limitations section uh, when we talk about uh, this study. I, I think it, it is one of the concerns, and actually it's probably the only major methodological concern with this study. So we'll come back to it if you're okay with waiting. Absolutely. With bated breath. So tell me about the results. So overall, they found that endovascular treatment was significantly better than exercise, but that the difference became smaller over time between the groups. So let's start with the exercise-only group. At baseline, that group could walk about 285 meters maximum. At one month, they could walk 440 meters. At six months, they could walk 850 meters. And at one year, they could walk 950 meters. Okay, so pretty dramatic improvements from baseline after 12 months of exercise. Okay, so first takeaway is exercise is actually very effective. Absolutely. So now let's look at the revascularization group. So at baseline, they could walk about 265 meters. At one month, that jumped to 1,000 meters, basically. Okay, so there was a big difference at one month between the exercise group and the revascularization group. So a difference of more than 500 meters. Correct. Okay, so that's dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. At six months, the revascularization group could walk a little bit farther, 1,250. So they did improve. But they didn't improve as much as the exercise group improved in that interval. And so the difference between groups now is only about 400 meters. And then at 12 months, which is our final primary outcome, the revascularization group had improved to, again, it was about 1,200 meters overall. Whereas the, if you remember, the exercise group now was able to walk 950 meters. So the between group difference was only about 280 meters. Okay, so it seems like revascularization gets you immediate and substantial benefit. 
Right. Um, and that benefit does persist all the way to 12 months. Absolutely. It's just not as dramatic. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So there's two immediate outstanding questions. The first is, what about adverse effects? So obviously, it seems like revascularization can really improve people's walking times. But were there any complications? And the second is back to that question about generalizability. 30% seems to me concerning. Okay, yeah, perfect. Okay, so the first question around complications. So about 100 people were randomized to the revascularization group. 96% of the procedures were technically successful. 4% of the procedures were not technically successful. And of those... uh, Three of the patients underwent an open surgical procedure, uh, including endarterectomy or bypass. Okay. okay. So that's the first thing is that some proportion of the patients on whom there was an intervention required a more intensive intervention. The second uh, set of complications were minor procedure-related complications, which occurred in about 7% of patients undergoing uh, procedures, including a groin hematoma, localized arterial dissection, there were no major complications around the procedure. There's a really important point to make that in the exercise alone group, 23 patients, so 22% of the patients, ultimately needed a revascularization procedure in the 12 months of the study because of deterioration of their own symptoms. This is also potentially important because it might explain the major finding, which is that the exercise group seemed to get a lot better over time. And one of the major questions is, did they get a lot better because they had these emergent revascularization procedures? Or did they get better because of the effects of exercise, which just take time? In or- and so the, the proposed way that exercise makes you better is that you develop collateral circulation. So all these smaller blood vessels grow to to supply those muscle groups, but that takes time. It's not clear from this study whether it was those interventions that helped or whether it's that sort of the exercise itself which helped. That's that's an interesting point, but I think to the credit of the authors, they seem to have reported an intention to treat analysis, which has lots of benefits in its own way. Yeah, it helps us at least comment on the strategy. And I think one way of interpreting the findings is of the people randomized to exercise alone, 75% of them did not need another intervention. And uh, did most of them, you know, on average at the end, uh, had still much improved exercise tolerance. Yeah. And the other important point is, of course, that intention to treat actually mirrors what happens clinically. You have to make a decision at some point whether to treat or not. And then you see the consequences. Absolutely. Uh, so I think there's a, the, one other outstanding point about that, which is sort of what is the cost effectiveness of this intervention? And that's an analysis I think that the authors are undertaking and probably will report some point in the future. Right. So with your excessive verbiage, you've interestingly still not answered my, general, my generalizability question. Your use of the word verbiage... Is verbose. Go on. There we go. Okay. So um, it's a really important point about uh, generalizability. Actually, the one sort of methodological point and limitation of this study that the authors note and that that is, I think, really important is that only the major recruitment center kept screening logs of who was screened and who was not... Uh, enrolled in the study. The smaller centers did not do that. So for about 300 of the patients that were not included in the study, there was no record available as to why they were not included in the study. And that does raise, I think, a really important potential problem for selection bias in this study. Okay, so 
300 of 450 patients excluded. They don't have logs explaining why they were excluded. Correct. That is shocking. That Okay, so that should have been mentioned right with the introduction of your study. <laughs> to me, that's such a major problem. I, I can't believe that this paper was published in JAMA this way. I, I really can't believe it. So only Well, there's a, a reason I left it to the end because I didn't want you to get <laughs> so, all worked up. So only a third of patients were eligible in the first place, problem. And secondly, about 70% of patients who are excluded, they don't know why they were excluded. That, that is stunning. That is stunning. Like I said, slow week in the research world. <laughs> I have similar comments to make about your work. Oh, my God. All right. We should move on quickly. <laughs> we should move on before you get yourself into trouble. That's right. Other than I... I think it's a really, really important limitation. That's why I wanted to take time to talk about it uh, afterwards. I agree with you. So, you know, I think it raises an important question about generalizability um, of these findings. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you agree. So it sounds as though you're now willing to write off the entire study. As, I, I mean, as... this, is, I, this is shoddy research. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say that. I hope no one I know is a co-author on this paper, but... If you lose the exclusion reason for the majority of your patients that are excluded, that is a problem. So to be fair to the authors of this study, it's not like they tried to sweep this limitation under the table or anything. They very openly addressed it. And so let me just quote back to you their response uh, to this criticism. They say, An adequate screening log for all eligible patients was only stored at the largest center. Due to an absence of screening logs at the other centers... Some patients might have been eligible for inclusion, but were not screened or might have been excluded based on the preference of physicians. Yet, no indication for such bias exists, and the baseline characteristics of the population included in this study are comparable with previously published RCTs of patients with claudication, and they cite several RCTs in which... Uh, the patient population of this trial looks similar to that. So their argument is that while, yes, there may have been a risk of selection bias, if you look at the patients included in this trial, there's not evidence of a particularly skewed population. So even if we accept this at face value, your initial point remained, which is that of all the patients screened, still only about 30% ended up being enrolled in this trial. And this speaks to probably one, the need for patients to have had stable disease over a period of three months, and two, to have a target lesion that could be intervened on. And so when interpreting the results of this study, the other thing for us to remember is that this is in a fairly select group of patients who would be eligible for an interventional procedure. Okay, so, so to summarize, Fahad is chagrined at best. Whereas I think that with a very important caveat that there are concerns about possible selection bias in this study, um, the rest of this study was conducted with rigor uh, and showed that the group of patients that were assigned to revascularization had an early and dramatic improvement in exercise tolerance but that the difference between the revascularization group and the exercise-only group declined over time. And this at least raises the question again of whether we should be looking at revascularization earlier in the course of peripheral arterial disease uh, with the theory that it enables people to exercise more fully and therefore 
uh, improve and maintain gains that they make during an exercise program. And I think that there is significant further work to be done in this field, and I'm sure you would agree with that last point. I, I would agree. So I would say that the results that are presented are quite compelling to suggest that this is very effective. I would say that the major limitations in study design and reporting of what happened to patients makes it hard to take this and apply clinically right away. Agree. So not practice changing, but certainly very suggestive. Uh, very important. Yeah. I, I really, they should do, that. this trial should probably be redone and redone properly. And for longer periods of time and Absolutely. with a cost-effective analysis to Absolutely. find out what happens after 12 months and exactly. whether the differences are yeah. meaningful. Perfect. Okay. Let's change gears. Can we get you in a better mood? I bet you you're going to have a really depressing good stuff segment. Let's move on to our good stuff segment and see if Fahad, Fahad Humbug over there has something good to say. Well, I mean, I, my good stuff this week, I think, is part of a fascinating story about hepatitis C. Um, it was, uh, I'm going to talk about an article that was just published by Don, Donald McNeil in the New York Times, and it's about how hepatitis C treatment is being rolled out in Egypt. So Egypt has a long and fascinating story with hepatitis C. Egypt, as some of our listeners may know, has the highest burden of hepatitis C in the world. About 10% of the population has hepatitis C, and that's about 9 million people. And the reason why there's so much hepatitis C is kind of a dark page in public health history. So Egypt has, uh, uh, Egypt has historically had a significant burden of schistosomiasis, and there was extensive vaccination campaigns against it, Unfortunately, they were using reusing needles, dirty needles, and that spread hepatitis C throughout the population. And the estimate is about 6 million people were given hepatitis C by this vaccination campaign, and that's why there's such an enormous burden. So fast forward to the last couple of years where these dramatic uh, advances have been made in the treatment of hepatitis C, and now there's the potential of treating this enormous population of hepatitis C um, infected people in Egypt. Unfortunately, as some of our listeners will know from prior episodes, the treatment is very expensive. So, for example, sofosbuvir, one of the first drugs on the market, and it was produced by Gilead Science, costs $1,000 per pill. That's $1,000 per day and a, a treatment cost of about eighty dollars to $100,000. Obviously not affordable for a low or middle-income country like Egypt. Very difficult for us to afford even in a high-income country like Canada. So Gilead made a deal with the Egyptian government, and they're going to provide treatment for the entire Egyptian population at a cost of $10 per pill. So one one hundredth of the cost uh, here in Canada or, for example, in the United States. Now, this is obviously incredibly important from a public health point of view, but they want to prevent some of that medication from being recycled into the black market and then being resold in higher income countries where they can afford to pay the astronomically high price for this drug. And the way that they've done that is they have said that they have mandated that all pills must be dispensed by government pharmacies. All patients must turn in an, an, an old bottle in order to get a fresh bottle of medication, and they must immediately open the bottle in front of the pharmacist and take one of the pills so that the seal is broken and the bottle cannot be easily resold. Now, obviously, this is not the typical way that people take medication, and, and there are many activists that are furious about these restrictions. For example, uh, a pharmacist in Egypt who is a member of the Egyptian Initiative on Personal Rights said that this is humiliating to make patients do this, and it raises a lot of ethical issues. And for example, Dr. Jennifer, Jennifer Kahn, who's the medical director 
of, for drug access at Doctors Without Borders described this requirement as a third party introduced into the doctor-patient relationship and said that it sets an incredibly dangerous precedent. So, Amal, what do you think? Do you think this is reasonable, what Gilead Science is doing? Do you think the benefits for the population outweigh these new restrictions they've put into place? Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting story. So thanks for bringing it up. It reminds me of directly observed therapy for TB in which there is a, a third party that intervenes in the doctor-patient relationship, but it's presumably in the interest of uh, public health. And so the, to reduce the risk of transmission of TB, people have to have directly observed therapy, exactly. whereas this is to the basically financial benefit of a drug company. While at the same time, the drug company, you know, is theoretically, I guess, taking a fairly substantial revenue cut in making a deal with the Egyptian government. And then there's the added issue of the Egyptian government having a sort of moral imperative here based on their liability on the creation of the hep C epidemic to begin with. So I think it's really fodder for someone with more time and more thought than me to weigh in on the ethical elements of it. But it seems really complicated. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I would say that uh, the the part of me that really just focuses on practical outcomes uh, says that we're talking about 10 million people who could be treated using this method. Is it ideal? No. But does it effectively get treatment out to them? It does. And so I would say in that sense that this is the way to go, but I can understand why people are upset. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Okay, my good stuff segment is a piece that was also published in JAMA in their medical education issue entitled Lessons Learned from Comics Produced by Medical Students. So the Penn State College of Medicine has an elective Humanities in Medicine course, which is called Comics in Medicine. And since 2009, 66 students in that course have drawn their own comic or graphic story. And roughly half of the comics showed imagery that is derived from the horror genre, as the authors in this article write. Students are portraying their workplace as dungeons, patients as haunting ghosts, supervising physicians as monsters, and students as sleep-deprived zombies. And so I'm going to quote from the article. They say, The word apocalypse comes from the Greek root, meaning to uncover or reveal. The horror imagery embraced by some students seems to uncover and reveal deeper anxieties in the minds of future physicians. So the authors of this paper ask us to reflect on what these comics reveal about medical training and also to reflect on what we would put in our own comic. So, Fahad, what would be in your comic? Oh, you can't put me on the spot like that. <laughs> but you can put me on the spot with a super complex ethical dilemma. All I can say is that my comic would be a very large microphone chasing me and saying, subscribe in iTunes, subscribe in iTunes, subscribe in iTunes. And on that note, listeners of the Rounds Table, please leave a rating or comment in iTunes. It really helps us get the word out about the podcast. That's right. We love you, listeners. Okay. Happy holidays to all. And happy to all holidays. a good night. Uh, pleasure to chat with you, Fod. See you in the new year.